0: good morning, good morning. Woo! so the first thing I want you to do maybe you've you've experimented a little bit already but take a minute check in with your body good morning body what's your energy like right now maybe you're feeling a little sluggish maybe that coffee's kicked in and your heart rates Kicking in, maybe you have some anxiety about how you're gonna handle the logistics of this week with your family. Maybe you get a little space while you're here and you feel a certain calm right now and maybe you're kinda jazzed up, whatever it is. How are you feeling it in your body? Now, alongside that energy, maybe there's some pain somewhere, maybe the knee, maybe the hip, maybe the jaw, the head, anywhere, are you feeling pain right now? Is there a history for you associated with that pain? Maybe you have a surprising absence of pain, and that is a mysterious miracle at this moment. Let's just notice that. Are you feeling kind of loose? Are you feeling kind of tight? How do you like sitting in a chair? Are there parts of you calling out for attention right now? Take a moment to notice what your breath is doing in your body, and we'll be talking more about the breath uh, tomorrow What's your breath doing? Can you notice things like how your your clothes are touching you? What it feels like that you have this chair under you, this floor making contact with your feet and your feet pushing back. Even the feel of gravity on you. The earth is actually a little bit coming up to meet you. Notice this space. How does it affect your body, the air temperature, the light, some natural light coming in, people in the room, how does your body respond to all of that? And as we notice these things, we're often inclined to judge, especially with regard to pain. We don't like pain or if we feel tired, that must be some moral failing on our part or something wrong in the shape of our life. Don't judge it right now. Just, hey, good morning, body, whatever is going on, check in. And each day when you come into this lecture hall, just take a minute and check in and start in that place so that we are in our bodies, that we know that we are doing this work in our bodies. You have note cards. And this is just a way for you to contribute at any time uh, during today's lecture if you feel inspired to write down a question, an insight, something that is personally challenging you, some practical application that comes to mind and you want to kind of enter that into the collective wisdom. We're crowdsourcing. Here in a very low-tech kind of way, or old tech. I'm, I'm, uh, I have a, a love of the old tech and the new tech. Um, just make a note of that. You can choose if you want to put your name on it or some initials, or if you just want to, just want to give it away. That's all up to you. I'll be collecting those. I won't uh, try to get them back to you. That would be a logistical nightmare. <laughs> so if you feel really moved by that insight or application or challenge, make a note of it, maybe on a different note card for yourself or in your, you know, in your notes or wherever. Okay, and we'll do that each day. Today's lecture, the title is More Than a Message, Reembodying Prophetic Experience, Action, and Word. So because we are all preachers here, I am going to start with a story. It is the story of a man of God who came out from Bethel. Out, I'm sorry, out of Judah, and an old prophet in Bethel. So two guys. It's a little hard to keep them straight in the story because neither of them have names. So we have man of God from Judah, old prophet, in Bethel. And you might remember this story. It's in 1 Kings 13. If you've got a Bible or a phone thing, whatever, feel free to open it up. The man of God comes out of Judah to Bethel, we're told by the word of the Lord. I want you to notice that agency, that compelling, impelling agency that literally motivates him, that moves him from one place to the other, and proclaims, he does, against the altar at Bethel right at the moment when the king is offering sacrifice on this altar. And the king stretches out his hand from the altar toward the man of God in a gesture that commands others to seize the body of this man of God, to grab hold of his body. And at that moment, the king's hand withers up. It dries up so that he cannot even draw it back to himself. The king later asks the man of God, please pray and heal me. He cannot move his arm. And the man of God prays and the king's hand is restored. Now, Because of a command he has received from the word of God, the man of God refuses the king's offer of royal food, water. We love water. He may not have any. And he is told he must begin his journey home by a new route. Now, the old prophet in Bethel hears about, quote, every deed the man of God had done, and he hears about the words he spoke. I want you to notice that pairing of deed and words. That's in verse 11. He goes to find the man of God sitting under a tree. If you're familiar with Deborah's story, you know that's the sort of thing prophets do. And the prophet offers the man of God food and drink. He deceives him into thinking the word the word of the Lord had given him, this prophet in Bethel, revised instructions for the mission of the man of God. It's okay to eat and drink on this, on this journey. And so the man of God accepts the prophet's hospitality, and the prophet does indeed add a new detail to the instructions the man of God received. He says that because he ate and drank in Bethel, he did not keep the Lord's command. And therefore the prophet says, "Your body, your body." In Hebrew the word is la which is translated in the Greek by Soma, probably a familiar word, soma body. Your body shall not come to your ancestral tomb. The body. More literally in Hebrew, the corpse of the man of God is mentioned rather pointedly nine more times in this narrative. Three times in verse 28 alone. If you're following along at all, you might take a look at that. So what do we hear about the body of this man of God? When a lion meets the man of God on the road and kills him, the man's body is thrown into the road a borrowed donkey and the executing lion each stand next to the body of the of the man of god we're told that people pass and see the body we're told that the lion shockingly does not eat the body also doesn't eat the donkey we're told the prophet lifts the body and finally buries the body in his own grave, mourning him as a brother and declaring, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried and lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he proclaimed, the saying that he proclaimed, by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel, it shall surely come to pass. You may uh, know that in Hebrew, bones are a metaphor for strength. They are recognized as the part of the body that endures the ravages of time. death They are the part of us that lasts on this earth. And they are a metonym for the whole person. What do the bones have to do with the word? For the moment, I'm not going to further analyze the story because I want us to regard it as a puzzle. And what I want you to puzzle on is why is the body of this man of God, so important. Because it was important, both while he lived and after he died. It was important enough that the hand of a king withered and became paralyzed so that no one would dare to touch the man of God in anger. It was important enough that the man of God had to protect it from the food and water of Bethel. And after his death, it was important enough that a lion And a donkey stood together to guard it. A prophet sought it. And the same prophet commanded his own bones to be buried next to the bones of this man of God." It was important enough that the narrator mentioned even this dead body 10 times in the span of nine verses. This is what I would call a high density of thematic repetition. You could say, well, the eating was about obedience. Care for his body was about respect. And I would say, yes, those are clearly motifs present in the story. But I would also say there's more going on. And that more enters into, stands guard over, and ultimately lays down beside the body of the man of God. Now, as we turn to. The phenomenon of prophecy. I want us to recognize that in the vast body of literature that forms the Old Testament Canon, prophets and prophecy don't all fit into one mold. Some of them aren't even called prophets, as we heard in the story of the man of God. He is called a prophet at one point in the narrative, but uh, we just notice there are different kinds of terminology that may be used. So as we think about different models, modes, modalities of prophetic activity and experience, we'll do a little, a little crowdsourcing here. If I ask you to think of a paradigmatic prophet, who comes to mind? Just call it out. Jeremiah. Samuel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Isaiah Elijah, Elijah else? Amos, Amos. (laughs) Hosea, no, Moses. did I hear a Moses? Mm -hmm. Moses, yeah. So if you think about these examples, when we think of Moses, um, you know, we have that uh, Deuteronomy 18 (laughs) passage referring to a prophet like Moses will arrive, and it's clear that for the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is the paradigm. Well, when we look at at what Moses' prophetic activity includes, we have the giving of the law. That's quite distinctive. But what else? The work of liberation, confrontation. When we think of Elijah and Elisha, miracles. Certainly, they were an important template for the miracles of Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels. And Jesus, is identified by some as Elijah returned, okay? When we think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, well, we begin to see writing enter the picture in a distinctive way, right? Amos, we think of of the prophet who advocates for justice, and often today, when we use the word prophetic, we mean someone uh, who is willing to stand up to the powers, to the structures of injustice. So if any one of these different models could be a paradigm, what does that tell us about prophecy? It's a diverse phenomenon. When we ask ourselves what is a prophet commissioned to do and be, This is a pretty broad set of activities, roles, and responsibilities. What is surprising then to me, and I mentioned this last night, is that when I turn to accounts of biblical prophecy in the best modern scholarship, I see over and over again that prophecy is simply about words. A prophecy is a message a communique, in which the prophet mediates, or reports, or proclaims the word or words of God to an intended audience. And in this understanding, the prophet is a messenger, a spokesperson, a proclaimer. Sounds like how we think of the role of preacher. And of course, prophecy is about those things. We have books of prophetic literature, and those books are made up of words. So that's pretty obvious. We have prophetic oracles, and these seem pretty central to the work of most of the prophets that we know of. Narrators are all the time telling us, as in the story we just heard, about the agency of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to this prophet, that prophet. The prophets are all the time saying, thus says the Lord, and word of the Lord. So that does sound like it's a matter of words and speaking. But in modern scholarship, what I'm seeing is that prophecy is almost always only about words, speech, messages, communication of the word. It is presented then as a phenomenon that can best be analyzed at the level of ideas and rhetorical meaning. And one problem with this is there is a great deal of prophetic experience and activity that it does not include. It is reductive and incomplete, and it is therefore inaccurate. Another problem is that this understanding of biblical prophecy very quickly becomes detached from the embodied life of God, the embodied life of God's people, and the embodied experiences, actions, and performance of the prophets themselves. This detachment affects our theology. It affects our pastoral practices. And I maintain that it also affects how we understand the person of the preacher, the nature of the work of preaching, and the relationship between the act of preaching and the embodied life of God and God's people. So I've given you a broad impression of what we find in modern scholarship, and I want us to consider some examples that I think are representative so that we can consider how what we are taught about biblical prophecy has already shaped our understanding and limited our understanding of that phenomenon. And later on, we'll do some further thinking to consider how it shapes and limits our understanding of the work of preaching. So I've chosen four contemporary scholars as representative of the field. They are Martini Victor Matthews, Walter Brueggemann, and Ellen Davis. And I want to be clear that these are scholars whose work I greatly respect and admire, from whom I have learned a great deal. These are superstars. In the introductory courses that I teach, I require things that each one of them have written, and I will probably continue to do so in the future. So I'm not picking on them, I want us to think through their work so we can see what further work we need to do. So Marty Nisenan locates ancient Israelite prophecy within the broader framework of ancient Near Eastern divinatory practices. Nisenan identifies what he calls a consensus among biblical scholars and among ancient Near Eastern scholars that prophecy refers to the intermediation of divine Knowledge, I want you to already just think about what that word choice does, divine knowledge. And it is a process of communication with four essential components. I made a drawing for you. (laughs) So the four components are the sender of the message, the message together with its verbal or symbolic performance, the prophet who is the transmitter of the message, that's the one in the middle, and the recipient of the message. While Nisenan correctly asserts that many written prophetic texts are secondary to prophetic performance, he emphasizes the oral and verbal dimension over any other embodied aspects of prophetic experience, (coughs) action, or performance. Victor Matthews, uh, his books uh, you may be familiar with, The Social World of the Hebrew Prophets, uh, and uh, that was an old title, I forget the new title, frequently assigned in introductory seminary courses, and he very helpfully brings sociological perspectives to his study of ancient prophecy. But in his analysis of prophecy itself, he primarily emphasizes speech describing the prophet as a spokesperson, referring to prophetic voices and the prophetic message. He also discusses a form of prophetic action that others have called prophetic acts, and we'll be looking at some of those on Wednesday, in which he refers to as enacted prophecy. He analyzes then prophetic dramatizations and gestures he analyzes them as forms of nonverbal communication and argues that synax add emphasis to the prophetic words or illustrate their message. So to be clear, I think looking at enacted prophecy and looking at nonverbal communication, this is very important, but we wanna see the reduction that happens when those actions are suddenly reduced to ornamentation or illustration of a verbal message that can only really be analyzed rhetorically, semiotically. So for Matthews, the primary emphasis is still on the message being communicated and actions are secondary support for that. Walter Brueggemann, his book, Prophetic Imagination, uh, rightly a classic, widely used as a textbook in introductory courses on uh, Old Testament and prophets. I'm going to bet that most of you are familiar with this book. And you will know then that he argues that the defining task of Israelites' prophets was to, one, expose and critique what he calls royal consciousness, and two, to energize God's people to embrace hope and imagine and live into alternative just reality. And in an updated preface in 2001 uh, to his revised edition, Brugemann highlights among some of the recent developments in biblical studies generally and the study of prophecy more particularly, the idea that quote, texts are acts of imagination that offer and purpose what he calls alternative worlds that exist because of and in the act of utterance. Because of and in the act of utterance. Imagination follows from words. Worlds follow from imagination. So Brueggemann highlights the relationship between imagination and action. Uh, I think that's terrific. He offers a postscript on practice in that same volume that identifies numerous examples of what he considers uh, to be prophetic ministries today, particularly among Christians in the US, and he asserts that, quote, the interplay between prophetic texts heard imaginatively and concrete practice is a defining one for the church that will become more crucial in time to come. This interplay is promising for what we are focusing on this week. It gets us closer to an embodied understanding of prophecy. Um, But Brueggemann is articulating a linear flow that proceeds from utterance to imagination to action, and that action then is only secondarily prophetic. For Brueggemann, the primary shaping agents remain voice, utterance, text. Our last example, my colleague Ellen Davis. She's a wonderful colleague and an amazing scholar. In her recent book, Biblical Prophecy, Ellen Davis offers what I think is a more nuanced and more multifaceted portrait of the prophetic role portrayed in Israel's scriptures. For Davis, the prophet is, first of all, an interpreter. And in this respect, the prophet comes to sound very much like a biblical scholar. So I, you know, that's tempting. Uh, but uh, Davis now Davis helpfully recognizes prophecy as more than a text-centered or verbal phenomenon. She says, it is an aspect of religious experience. And she knows that prophetic experience, such as Isaiah's temple vision, and we'll be looking at that uh, tomorrow, engages every physical sense She asserts that the prophet's integrative perspective combines religious, economic, ecological, biological, and social aspects of human experience in the world. And for Davis, this integrative perspective is particularly evident in what she calls prophetic relationality, including works of healing and intercession, prophetic participation, in human and divine suffering, and I agree with all of that 100%. But I want us to pause with an example from Davis's book that I think can help us to see where confusion arises uh, and and to see the power of our inherited biases on our uh, our own frameworks, how it becomes so easy to regard These aspects of embodied life and even the very embodied character of prophecy as a type of window dressing, incidental, rather than an essential focus and component of prophetic activity. The example is Elijah's resuscitation of the dead child of the widow of Zarephath. For Davis, this story is emblematic of prophetic relationality and work of intercession, so let's hear the details, 1 Kings 17, 17 to 22. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe there was no breath left in him. She then said to Elijah, what do you have against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. But he said to her, give me your son. He took him from her bosom, carried him up into the upper chamber where his lodging was, and he laid him on the bed he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come to him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and gave him to his mother. And then Elijah said, see, your son is alive. So the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Davis argues that the broader Elijah narratives emphasize human responsibility to treat, tend, and share the physical means of life, those essentials without which we cannot survive for long, water, food, arable land. She notes that the Biblical narratives link divine provision of those physical necessities to the word of the prophet. And for Davis, it is similarly Elijah's words that prompt God to restore life to the child. Physical contact with the boy in this story for Davis is an, it's an act of vulnerability and solidarity that Quote, initiates and reciprocates the woman's actions, her action of giving all that she has to answer the needs of the other. Davis allows that both prayer and action in this story can be conduits of divine power, but the words of Elijah's prayer are the effective catalyst. And remarking on the Elijah narrative more broadly, she writes, The prominence and power of the prophetic word is the clearest marker of the new era that begins with Elijah, as it becomes now almost a character in the story. This emphasis on the effective word of the prophet, it is present in the text. You heard as well as I did that the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the woman declared that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. But why did the boy take the child's breathless body in his arms and carry the boy to a specific location in the house? Why did Elijah three times stretch his body upon the body of the child? These actions frame, accompany, and punctuate the words of prayer. Was it really the words alone that were efficacious? A very similar scene will be narrated in second kings 4 when elisha restores life to the son of the shunammite couple listen to this story for similarities and differences when elisha came into the house he saw the child lying dead on his bed so he went in and he closed the door on the two of them and prayed to the lord then he got up on the bed and lay upon the child, putting his mouth upon his mouth, his eyes upon his eyes, his hands upon his hands. And while he lay bent over him, the flesh of the child became warm. He got down, walked once to and fro in the room. Then he got up again, bent over him, and the child sneezed seven times. And the child opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite woman. He called her when she came. He said, take your son. She came and fell flat at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she took her son and left. Scholar Thomas Overholt has argued that the parallel actions of Elijah and Elisha, these stories are so similar, indicate that the stories portray the performance of a known ritual, a known ritual in which not only the words but also the actions of the prophet are efficacious and necessary for restoring life to the child. Now, their actions are uh, the sort that makes us uncomfortable, I think, in the present context. Um, But for the moment, I want you to notice the density, again, that density of details regarding the bodies of Elijah, I'm sorry, Elisha, the child, and the Shunammite woman. Elisha sees. The child lies. Elisha lies upon him, mouth, eyes, hands, reduplicated in that repetitive language. The prophet's body we see bent over twice. We see him walking back and forth, the warmth entering and radiating from the child's body. And finally, the child sneezing seven times opening eyes, this woman falling at Elijah's feet, bowing her own body to the ground. And by contrast with all of those details, you see I have a second column. The only reference to his words are that he prayed to the Lord. This narrative accentuates embodied encounter to a higher degree than the earlier narrative of Elijah. On balance, I think there is no way to reduce Elisha's prophetic activity in this story to a word, a message, or even a meaning. Now to recap, Brueggemann's focus on imagination, Nisenan's focus on communication, they're two examples of word-centered approaches to ancient prophecy. And these scholars are occasionally able to touch on prophecy's performative and embodied dimensions, but not fundamentally to integrate those dimensions into an understanding or articulation of what prophecy was or is. Matthews gives greater attention to what he calls enacted prophecy, but his model for understanding prophetic gesture, symbolic action, remains anchored to what I would call a semiotic understanding oriented toward signs and meanings uh, of prophecy as an act of communication that conveys a message. Davis's portrait of Israelite prophecy as relational takes us further, attending to the land and the embodied needs of the people, but her overarching model of prophet as interpreter is guided by the analogy between prophet and textual scholar, and ultimately privileges word, message, and meaning over embodied experience, action, and relationality. So with these examples in view, it seems to me there's a very big missing piece in the puzzle. And like the story in 1 Kings 13, I do think biblical prophecy is something of a puzzle. That missing piece is embodiment. I want us to retrieve the body. And before we unpack why that matters in the days ahead, before we begin the work of recovering the body of the prophet, where a lion and a donkey are guarding it for us, we need to understand Where did it go? So I'm going to tell that story in very broad strokes. The first place to start is with the influence on early Christian thinkers of Plato, Gnosticism, and Neoplatonic thought, and in particular, their attitudes toward the body. So we'll just look at an example from Plato that many of you will have heard of uh, in one form or another. In the dialogue Phaedrus. Plato offers a three-part model of the human person. And he uses the analogy of a charioteer in a chariot. The charioteer is the rational intellect or the soul. The charioteer is trying to get to truth and eternity and God. And the vehicle that will get the charioteer to truth is a chariot drawn by two very uh, lively horses, and he must steer them. One horse is animated by morality and directed by reason. The other is driven by the desires of the body. The former may aid the seeker of truth. The latter may hinder her. Both must submit to the charioteer if she will arrive at her moral and intellectual goal. You can hear in this model a separation of mind and body, and the idea that we need to get them to cooperate somehow. They are fundamentally separate and even alienated from each other. The body is a kind of necessary engine, but also an obstacle. The intellect, or the soul, which for Plato is the part that draws near to God, must tame and discipline and even dominate the body. Now, alongside this model of a divided person, the intellect or soul somehow above the body and the passions Plato and the Gnostics and the Neoplatonists also developed the idea of a dispassionate, disembodied deity. This notion of a disembodied, immutable, omniscient and impassable God influenced Christian discourse and belief in the early Christian era. Just to give you a preview, this is not how the Old Testament pictures God. We'll come back to that. All right, the second uh, big moment I wanna land on is European colonialism beginning in the early 15th century. And colonialism was supported by a discourse and a frame about conquered cultures that constructed the category of magic to describe the barbaric and primitive religions of native peoples, conquered peoples. It became very easy to lump a broad array of embodied religious experiences and practices into this bad category of magic and to dismiss them as belonging to a primitive and false world view. These embodied aspects of so-called primitive religion were contrasted with the words of scripture and prayer and the beliefs of the colonizers. And just think to what you know about how that model was used to enslave people, to take their land, to take the fruits of their labor, and to dehumanize them. And we'll come back to that. Reformation. Protestant critique within the Reformation included a rejection of religious practices that were characterized as the dead rituals of Catholicism. Earlier understandings of religion as ritual or practice gave way to newer perspectives that emphasized belief and faith. Scholar Colleen Shantz observed that within modern study of religion, These shifts, quote, fueled attention to ideas and propositional knowledge. The methodological companion to the emphasis on belief is the focus on words, end quote. Luther's theology of the word privileged hearing over other sensory modes of perception and characterized God's encounter with God as that of being addressed. Cartesian dualism. Around 1629, Rene Descartes, in his meditations, uh, developed a model, it will sound very similar to Plato's uh, model, and became even more influential from the perspective of modernity. He distinguished between, uh, using the Latin phrase, res extensa, body, extensa, just the thing that takes up space, uh, and res cogitans, the mind the thinking thing uh, he distinguished those as the parts of the self and like plato's three-part model descartes two-part model was not only a division but a hierarchy uh, commonly referred to today as mind body dualism or cartesian dualism this formulation privileged mind over body sometimes soul intellect again Mind is noble, body is base. Very briefly, a word uh, about the Enlightenment running kind of parallel with some of these other developments and shaped by them. So Enlightenment continues this earlier trajectory uh, from the Reformation and the Cartesian paradigm, but something distinctive happens here, which is, is a kind of reduction of religion to a matter of the private intellect a matter of the private intellect, and and we can see how that contributes to the disembodying of religion more generally. Capitalism, beginning with the establishment of a competitive labor market in England in 1834, along with modern science, technology, capitalism relies on what Randall Stiers calls quote, mechanistic, and rationalized manipulation of the material world. Now, at the same time, you had romanticism kind of pushing back on that mechanistic understanding. Um, And in this movement, you find an emphasis on the individual inspiration of the prophet, uh, the individual imagination. And the figure of the prophet emerges as a poet whose words and vision were detached from history, detached from context, detached from embodied realities. What's the legacy today? The valuing of mind and spirit over body means a devaluing of body and embodiment. It continues to play out in modern day settings. Wealth, education, and technology can make it possible to mitigate and minimize the perceived negative effects, hindrances of life in the body for some. But the fundamental dualism of the mind-body split attaches itself to other dualisms. Educated, uneducated, rich, poor, leisure class, working class, white collar, blue collar, male, female, colonizer, colonized, white, black and brown, able, disabled, healthy, diseased. And within such a framework, some people are, socially speaking, privileged by the kind of body they inhabit. But that fact is disguised such that their bodies are less marked. There is a fiction then that their bodies are less relevant because they are less of an impediment. Other kinds of bodies are regarded as dangerous, more sexual, dirty, less noble, less human, less than human. The dualism of mind and body feeds racism, sexism, heterosexism, body shaming, and more. From the standpoint of Christianity, The mind-body split prevents us from witnessing to God's will for the flourishing of the whole created person and of creation. It prevents us from recognizing the embodied nature of our own work, our life with God, and the embodied nature of the people we serve. And the truth is, the idea of a divided person or a disembodied floating intellect, that idea is for the most part foreign to the Old Testament. And the same is true for the idea of a disembodied God. According to the Old Testament, the Israelites and Judeans worshiped a God who they believed had a body. Sometimes that body had human form. Sometimes it was both similar to and unlike ours, bright and immense, winged, surrounded by fire, or cloaked with clouds, or invisible to the human eye, but still in a body. And their own faith was not strictly propositional. It was shaped by and manifest in embodied encounter and praxis. The New Testament scriptures offer us a fulcrum that can help us to move our own understanding of the life with God, the life of faith, the task of prophecy, the task of preaching in a direction more consistent with the witness of the Old Testament. That fulcrum is the insistence of the New Testament that God chose to become flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh to achieve our salvation. As we reflect this week on embodied dimensions of biblical prophecy, I'll be asking you to think about how it relates to our understandings of God and God's interactions with human beings. And I'll ask you when you hear or see a reference to the word of God in biblical narrative to expand your idea of what that word is, so that even word is understood to implicate and involve the body. I'm going to argue that the word of God was always enfleshed. The prophets of Judah and Israel were more than messengers and interpreters. Their prophetic ministry entailed far more than speaking words. And the prophecies recorded in scripture by and about them cannot be reduced. They cannot be reduced to their verbal content. As such, we can't sufficiently understand them through only rhetorical or semiotic analysis. We'll be turning our attention to what these prophets experienced and did in the their bodies how in their prophetic ministry they interacted with the bodies of others and even how prophecy wasn't as received in the bodies of their audiences one of our presumptions this week will be that there is a fundamental analogy between prophecy and preaching the english words are etymologically speaking uh, related, very similar, as you probably know. Prophet from Greek, prophetes from pro fami, compound I speak forth for on behalf of. Latin preach from prae, "dico" I speak forth with two meanings, one to cry out in public or announce, and the other to tell in advance, to warn or predict. And of course the etymology doesn't establish the analogy, It's just drawing our attention to some of the historically recognized connections between prophecy and preaching. I want you to reflect during our time together this week on the relationship between prophecy and preaching. And for today, I want to leave you with some questions for reflection that we'll be coming back to later in the week. What happens? or what has happened in our preaching when we lose sight of, dismiss, or denigrate the body, what have we lost? If the confession that the church is body of Christ is more than a metaphor, and I believe that it is, what difference does that make in our preaching? How should your preaching interact with and relate to the embodied life of your congregation and their community? What role does your body, this body you checked in with an hour ago, what role does your body have in your life with God? And what role does your body have in your preaching?